All right, we're going to continue in our study of 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 4, and the verses today are verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. If you have the Blue Pew Bibles open, you can find that on 1016 in those Blue Pew Bibles. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And... If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I'm not going to tell you the story of Horatio Spafford. I'm going to encourage you to go and look it up this week. I want you to look up the history of It Is Well With My Soul. And at some point this week, I want you to praise God for the testimony of his church. Horatio Spafford, It Is Well With My Soul. Please join me. Let's pray as we come before the word. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you have drawn us together. As Dan reminded us earlier, that you have called us into your presence, that you are God and that your commands are effective, that when you speak, not only do people listen, but reality comes into existence Father, I praise you that you are God and there is no one else. Father, as we draw near to your word today, we ask that you would be with us. Father, Dan has already prayed that as we hear your word preached, you would cause it to penetrate deep into our hearts and bear the fruit of repentance and faith. And so, Father, I agree with him. And I, too, pray that for us. Father, we have been praying throughout this summer that you would be with these five young women who have left our congregation and gone on to college. 
And Father, we think about Rowan and the life of the church and how the church will speak volumes on your behalf in his life. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to Louisa and to Avery and to Hannah thus far. And we continue to lift up Katie and Marie and ask that even before they find themselves in Minnesota and California, they would find that you have gone before them to prepare a place for them. Father, some of us are coming to this text this week and we are not going to be able to listen unless you, Holy Spirit, work on our hearts. The suffering has been too much. The grief has settled in. And Father, if we're honest, there is also a tinge of bitterness. And so I'm asking you, in your kindness, would you soften our hearts? Father, for some of us, the hope of a new day is so close that the idea of suffering seems so distant. And it even makes us wonder, why would we listen to this text? Holy Spirit, I pray that you too would affect the hearts of women and men in this room and sow the seeds of your truth because, Jesus, you have promised suffering. Father, as we draw near to you, we confess to you that our knowledge of suffering in the world outstrips our ability to do anything about it. And Father, as we see and hear the chaos and the fear and the absolute terror unfolding for Christians specifically in Afghanistan. Father, we ask that your presence would be with them uniquely. Father, you say in this text that your children who suffer according to your name are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon them. And Father, we don't know what to do but to pray for our brothers and sisters around this world who right now are expecting and experiencing persecution that we can hardly wrap our minds around. But Father, we know that their suffering is not for naught because Jesus, you, the Creator, has entered into our suffering. Lord Jesus, as we have been taught to pray by our sisters and brothers, in China, pray that our suffering would be sanctified and we would be changed and made more like Jesus with fear and trepidation. We pray the same for our sisters and brothers even now in Afghanistan. Father, we draw near to you 
And we confess to you that there are times when we are scared to draw near. When the reality of our loss of control is so present that the external suffering and the internal suffering seems too great might possibly strip even our souls. Father, would you remind us that you are the one who says in your word that you have carved our names on the palm of your hand and that our walls of protection are always before you. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this text that is so practical and so necessary. Lord Jesus, you are the one who promised us suffering. And so I pray that as we look upon that reality in light of this word, you would lift our eyes And that we would gaze upon you. And that seeing you more clearly, Jesus, we would be transformed more and more into your image. Change us. Holy Spirit, that is your job. And you delight in doing it. And so we ask you, make each of us more like Christ. In your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. We are nearing the end of our study of Peter, and it strikes me this week that Peter is a fisherman and as such is very practical. I don't know if many of you have ever fished before, but most fishermen will do anything to catch fish. It becomes a very practical activity. And though Peter has been taken from being a fisherman of fish to a fisherman of men by the very promise of Jesus, we see here that he writes very practically today in these verses. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, page 1016 for you. Peter writes to persuade us, his audience, of something. He writes to persuade us of something today, and it's glaring in the verses. Verse 19, it's hard to get clearer than this, so look at it. If you want to know what Peter's trying to persuade us of, he says it in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter's persuasion for you and me, is to entrust ourselves to God, to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The context is one that we have been in since the second chapter in the fourth verse. Peter says, as you come to him, in chapter 2, verse 4, as we draw near to Jesus, and since we have drawn near to Jesus Peter has showed us what it looks like to be with Christ in every human institution in which he has said we ought to submit ourselves, both the unjust ones and the just ones. 
And also, Peter says, in the midst of suffering. And Peter writes to us now and reminds us that all of our lives are to be lived in light of the presence of God. How different would your life be if I just decided for the week I would walk with you and go with you wherever you went and whatever you did? Just think about it for a minute. How different would that be if you turn around and every time you turn around, there's Bradley. You're like, well, that's kind of weird. There he is still. Is it, did he, it, we really need another seat at the dinner table? There's Bradley again, right? All of us can imagine how differently we would live our lives if one of us was constantly with the other of us. Peter heard Jesus say, I will never leave you or forsake you. And as he was leaving the earth, he says, lo, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. Peter understood what it meant to live life in the presence of Christ and how it changed every relationship. We are reminded because of Peter that our faith is not one of propositions. Yes, there are propositions to our faith that are true for us, and we ought to know those propositions. The Apostle Creed is based on propositions. But our faith is one of relationship. As you come to him, Peter says... Everything being considered in that light, all human institutions, right? So one theologian of the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer, was able to write an entire book that says, how shall we then live? In light of this reality, Peter is the one who heard Jesus says, I will always be with you. Peter's simple command that's consistent with all of Scripture. Go look at Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 if you want to. Peter's simple command in verse 19. In suffering, entrust yourself to God. To give yourself fully over to the care and the protection of another. That's what it means to entrust. But Peter says, in suffering, entrust yourself to the will of God, to a faithful creator. We get a little bit more of that in just a minute. Last summer, or two summers ago, rather, Mita and Louisa and I went to Colorado, and Louisa paraglided. And if you have any idea of what it means to entrust yourself to someone, that's a good picture. We're on this steep slope, and she is buckled into the front of this guy that can't be 24 years old. And she is 17. And he looks at her and says, trust me, I've got this. And, and you're sitting there going, what? And then all of a sudden, the hands are pulled, the kite lifts, and off they go. Entrusting oneself, right? Peter is saying in suffering, entrust yourself to a faithful creator. My question for you and for me is how can we know if and when we are entrusting ourselves to God in our suffering? How can we know? There are only two points to this sermon. The first is by looking at our response to suffering, all right? And the second is by looking at our engagement with suffering. If Peter's command is for us to entrust our souls 
to God in the midst of suffering, I'm telling you that you will know, we can know if we are doing that by looking at first our response and second at our engagement with suffering. So first, our response to suffering. Are you entrusting your soul to God? I want to ask you, consider your reaction to suffering, to fiery trials. As Peter says it in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Our response to fiery trials, to suffering in our lives, ought to be rejoicing. He says it that clearly in verse 14 or verse 13. He says, don't be surprised in verse 12, but in verse 13 he says, but rejoice. Now come on. You've got to raise your hands and go, what? (laughs) Rejoicing? I'm supposed to rejoice in suffering. And not only suffering, but fiery trials. Don't just absorb this because you've heard it so many times. Let it shock you. Because it's shocking. One pastor in my life actually renamed our complaining in the face of suffering, low-level rejoicing. And the reason he renamed our complaining that way is because he wanted to remind us that we were supposed to be rejoicing. But we kind of stop and go, how do we rejoice in the midst of suffering? Rejoicing in suffering is extraordinary. But Peter is saying it ought to be the ordinary response. That those of us who have entrusted our souls to a creator who is faithful ought to experience suffering according to the will of God. How in the world are we supposed to rejoice? If that's supposed to be our response, that we rejoice, how is it possible? Verse 12 gives us the first of three hints. He calls this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. To prepare ourselves for rejoicing in the face of suffering, we need to remember that these fiery trials that have already been spoken of in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Peter writes, for those of you who for a moment have been under trial. Let's read it as he says it right there. He says, if, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it, be, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus that these fiery trials are the refinement of our faith. To understand how to rejoice, we've got to first believe this. What is God's will in testing our faith? His will is for our faith to succeed, to be proven, to be strengthened, is what Peter has already told us. Do you know that it is the exact opposite of Satan's intent in our lives. The purpose of Satan in his temptation of us is that he would destroy our faith. 
we see this great interaction and we're going to study this fall, this great interaction in the life of Job when Satan intends to destroy Job, but God intends to prove Job. God's purpose is to purify us and to prove our faith so that to the praise and the honor and the glory of Christ at the revelation of Jesus' coming. But there's a second thing that he says ought to encourage our rejoicing. And that's in verse 13. Verse 13 reads like this. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. Here is an axiom of Christianity and of our faith. As with Christ, so with Christians, is what Peter is saying. We read last week and Nathan preached last week on on chapter 4, verse 1, and it simply says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The reality of Christian faith is this, that suffering and glory go hand in hand. Suffering and glory go hand in hand. We see this in chapter 1, verse 11, where he says that those who came before us were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We read it again in chapter 1, verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. Death and glory, suffering and glory, hand in hand. And again in chapter 3, verse 14. Peter reminds us that we who suffer with Christ will also be glorified with Christ. Suffering and glory go hand in hand. But the third reason that he gives is in verse 14. Is that those who suffer in fiery trials ought to rejoice and not be surprised because it says in verse 14, we are blessed because we have the presence of God with us. He says in verse 14, the spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. Let that settle on your mind for a minute. God's presence rested on the Mount of Sinai. In a cloud of such lightning and flame and thunder and glory that the people said, please, don't let him talk to us from there. You, Moses, go talk to him. God says, don't touch the mountain. My presence is on it. God's presence rested in his temple in much the same way, almost tornado-like, it rested on the Ark of the Covenant, the very mercy seat where Moses would meet with God. But here, that spirit of glory and of God, we are said, rests upon us. How could we possibly respond to suffering with rejoicing? Instead of with fear, Instead of with anger, instead of with resignation, 
or denial, instead of with avoidance or retaliation or threats. Because we know God's will is to prove our faith. Because as with Christ, so with us, his followers, those who are called according to his name, right? And because he has promised that we are blessed with the very presence of God himself. That's the first of two. How will you know if you've entrusted your soul to God in the midst of suffering? You will actually rejoice in your suffering. The second is this. How will you know if you have entrusted your soul to God in the midst of suffering? You will actively examine your suffering. You will engage in your suffering. My mother confessed to me when I was newly married that she prayed that I would not suffer. And she said, you need to understand, I wake up every morning and I pray that my children would not suffer. I was a young pastor at the time, and I thought it very bold of me to say, Mom, you should not make that prayer. Jesus has promised suffering, and you pray that I wouldn't suffer. You're praying against God's will. As a parent, what do you think that Mita and I spend most of our time praying for our children? That they wouldn't have to suffer, right? But I want you to know that we were intended to engage with our suffering, to bring it close and to consider it. There are a handful of us that have been reading Thomas Aquinas, and it is a completely new way of reading for me. And one of the things that Aquinas argues for is exactness and precision in understanding the reality of something. Peter does that here. He has two questions for us as we engage and examine our suffering. The first question comes out of verse 15. Is this suffering that I'm in, is it a result of my own sinful actions or reactions? That's the first question that you should ask when you engage your suffering. Is this suffering a result of my own sinful actions or reactions? Listen to what Paul, Peter says in verse 15. Peter says right here in verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We have to ask ourselves, is the suffering that is happening to me a result of my own sinful actions or reactions? If the answer to that is yes, you're going to feel shame. You're going to realize, I'm ashamed of this suffering. In a minute, he's going to argue that there's suffering that should not make you feel ashamed. This suffering should make us feel shame. And shame is useful. It either drives us to despair or it drives us to repentance. What will be the difference for you? Will it drive you to despair or will it drive you to, dependent, to repentance? You know, I don't know. I want, as your pastor, more for you than I don't know. I'm going to tell you what will make the difference. Despair or repentance. 
when you realize that the suffering that you are experiencing is a result of your own sinful actions or reactions. It all depends on how you see the Father toward you. In Luke 15, Jesus gives us an image of the Father toward his prodigal son. You know the story, but have you heard this verse that describes the father recently. The father saw his son from afar. He felt compassion on him. He ran to him. He embraced him. And he kissed him. I want to ask you a question. Does God's kindness lead you to repentance Or do you think that your repentance generates God's kindness? There is a huge difference in those two things. Peter says you've got to look at your suffering in a different way. You've got to ask another question. Not just the question, is this suffering a result of my own sinful actions and reactions? But he says you've got to ask another question. And this is out of verse 16. Is my suffering a result of living as a Christian in a broken world? Think about this. Engage your suffering. Make a list of your suffering. Don't deny it. Don't be angry. Make a list and ask this second question. Is my suffering a result of living as a Christian in a broken world? Sharpen the pencil. Listen to it this way. Is my suffering the result of others' actions toward me because of my identity with Jesus? Is that why I'm suffering? Verse 16 tells us, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, in the name of a Christian. Let him glorify God. You guys, if the suffering that you are experiencing is a result of living as a Christian in a broken world, committed to God's commands of what it means to be a human being, of what it means that our sexuality is meant to glorify Him and not ourselves, of what it means for us to live faithfully in light of Him, even in the brokenness of this world that is outside me and inside me. Peter says, don't be ashamed of that suffering, but give glory to God. How can he possibly say give glory to God in that context? Because again... God is proving to you that he is enough. He is proving his faith. Not propositions, but relationship. There are two realizations that come out of engagement with our suffering this way. Number one is what it says in verse 17, that judgment has begun, and it's even beginning at the household of God. That's us. The language is that God has come to his temple. He sent his Holy Spirit in these last days. God is with us. God's very presence, 
the presence of a holy and just God, the fire of his holiness is with us. And we ought to give him glory for the suffering that proves and reproves us that sharpens us and removes everything else that we trust in so that we can say we only trust in you, Father, nothing else. God brings judgment to his household so that our faith is proved sufficient, that it's sustained even in the judgment of fire. Peter's got a lot to say about this. 2 Peter chapter 3 would be a great place to go look. Paul says to the Corinthians, look, all of humankind's work is going to be revealed by fire, the fire of God's holiness in their presence. But there's one other thing that's surprising that results when we engage in suffering this way. It actually leads us to consider others. Listen to how he says it in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And then listen to this. Don't let this miss you. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Interesting. Interesting. Your suffering is actually supposed to make you and me think of others. Have you engaged your suffering to the extent that you actually think of others? Or has your suffering so embittered you that you only think of yourself? That we wouldn't miss this. Paul quotes a proverb. you got to read this in the Greek version of the Old Testament to see what he's saying. But he says this, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Notice that in verse 17 and 18, the focus is not on the sufferer of Christ, not on the Christian, it's on the one who suffers without Christ. How in the world could it be that Christians are scarcely saved. I thought you told me that the blood of Jesus covers all my sin and, and, and absolutely covers all my sin. It absolutely does. But it was not without the difficulty of Christ's death on the cross for you and me. There is one reason why we will be saved. And it is not because of our righteousness apart from Christ. It's only because of his righteousness on and in us. Jesus told a parable that helps us understand this. He says there's a flood that came and there were two houses that were affected by this flood. You saw these houses and they looked really similar because these houses prepared for the flood and they built retaining walls. And as the flood came, so yeah, Jesus didn't tell you about the retaining walls, but I'm telling you about the retaining walls, right? I'm, I'm fleshing it out, you might say. And, and, and as the flood came, the people noticed that the flood was coming, but they also decided they're going to put up sandbags to keep the flood water from coming. 
But the flood water rose and it went over the sandbags, both of which both houses had. It went over the retaining walls, both of which both houses had. But only one house stood. Why? You children could answer this question for every adult in this room. Because one house was built on the sand and another house was built on the rock. This house that was built on the rock scarcely survived. It was never in doubt that it would survive, but it survived for one reason and one reason only. Jesus. What about those who do not have Christ? What does it mean to engage others because you suffer? I want to end with a quote that I put in the order of worship. You can turn to it if you want to. It's pretty straightforward. However, it's pretty profound. Lewis writes, When pain is born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least tincture of the love of God more than all. When pain abounds... Knowledge, understanding, okay, but better than knowledge, courage. But better than courage, yet sympathy. And yet better than sympathy, the smallest bit, that's what the least tincture means, the smallest taste of the love of God. Do you see that Peter has given us all three? He's given us knowledge. He's told us that the fiery trials are sent to us by God. He's given us courage in in chapter 1 when he says your souls have already been purified by your belief in the gospel. He's given us sympathy in chapter 5 when he says, fellow elders, I am a fellow elder with you. I'm a witness of Christ's sufferings. I am a partaker of his glory, which you can understand in Peter means I'm also a partaker of suffering. I can sympathize with you, but Peter does the better. He says to us, beloved, you who are loved, not by Peter, but by God. Peter says and calls us for only the second time in the letter, beloved. And then he writes, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You want to know something unique? Only here in the whole New Testament is God called creator. It's really interesting. Until you stop and scratch your head and say, you know something? That's actually what God tells Job in the book of Job about who he He is. He engages Job with the reality that he is the creator. A friend of mine put me on to a biblical scholar. Her name is Eleanor Stump. You're going to hear more about her because she has affected the way that Nathan and I are going to preach about the fear of God this fall. Eleanor Stump wrote a book called Wandering in Darkness. 
she uses the chapter, or the, she uses in one chapter Job and the illustration of his life to demonstrate that Job's greatest desire is an audience with God. And that what is most unsettling about Job in the midst of suffering is that God gives him that greatest desire. The psalmist writes in Psalm 147.10, God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast 